Okay, well, it is uh, good to be back with you all uh, again this morning. My my family has been in California, as uh, many of you know. We've been enjoying the the life out there with my in-laws, um, doing lots of different things. I think about we we went to two Oakland A's games. We're given tickets to that, so we had a wonderful time there. We um, had some time. Avon's parents owned some property and have borrowed some uh, quads. And you can just imagine now SR and Carissa on quads. And they were just zipping around this property for four whole days. And um, so they just did that. We had a wonderful time. Um, had a wonderful time at church, Grace Bible Church um, in Pleasant Hill, California. I met with a pastor a few days after we went to church. Had a wonderful time with him. He has planted two churches also. Um, and his, um, his church now is just flourishing and doing very well. Had a great time meeting with him. Trying to think of other things we did. We spent a lot of time in the sun. We spent a lot of time at the pool. Um, my my in-laws own a pool in their backyard, and so that was great. Hannah, her new name is Tana. You can just look at her. She is Tana's can be. That's great. Um, boy, what else did we do? Oh, we saw some friends. Went to a, a camp. I uh, saw some friends. Um, just had a had a wonderful time. Had a wonderful vacation. We've come back refreshed, uh, really, to serve the Lord here. But I tell you, though, the vacation that I have is nothing compared to the vacation that Phil Lawton is about to have. Uh, if many of you don't know, Phil Lawton was a member of our congregation. He's about 92 years old. Um, Tim Iverson came up to me and told me that he has just now been taken to Swedish American Hospital, uh, where Tim told me he was going home. And uh, just to tell you a little bit about uh, Phil, when we started our church, when we had our first meeting, thinking about the possibility about maybe starting a church in Rockford. Phil Otten was there, and uh, about 85 years old, I remember him sitting in Frank Yonke's family room, sitting back on a, a recliner, kind of we're talking about things. He said, oh, may I, and you guys know Phil, may I interrupt this? I just want to say that this church will be built on the foundation of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And then he sat back down and kind of watched the rest of the meeting. That's the only thing he said, but it really set the tone for our church and how it is. And he's been a wonderful member. He's Judy Iverson's uh, father, Tim Iverson's grandfather. And uh, I remember just in speaking with him how he, um, he just is looking forward to heaven. I, talked to him, I remember talking to him many times. You know, he was with us for about five years or so, talking to him many times about just how he's anticipating heaven, anticipating heaven, anticipating heaven. I remember the, the last sermon that he heard here at uh, Rock Valley Bible Church uh, before just the noise and stuff was too much for him was a sermon I preached on heaven from Revelation chapter 4 and chapter 5. Heaven, worship in heaven is God-centered, it's Christ-centered. And uh, Tim just said, prayed, told us to pray that just it would go quickly. I mean, he has just deteriorated in, uh, in recent years in the nursing home and um, he's been on his way to Swedes and maybe he's with the Lord right now, but I know it's been something he's been looking forward to immensely. It is his everlasting rest, right? I know just from his life that he's going to enter into the joy of his master. His master is going to say to him, well done, well done, good and faithful one. Enter into the joy of your rest. So let's just pray for him now and uh, pray for my message as well. God, so I think of the Iverson family, I think of the joy that they have brought to me um, in years. They've been just a faithful people. And um, God, I thank you for uh, the father of Judy. I think about um, Phil. I think about his encouragement to me as, um, as an older man who just uh, God, lived his life until the end. I remember at one point being in a nursing home and he was leading Bible studies in the nursing home and uh, just had a zeal and a passion and a love for you. He had a desire to be with you. Um, God, and I would pray even now, Lord, this Tim expressed that he might go soon to his eternal vacation where his eternal rest is found away from the the, the struggles of, of sin and the struggles of, of life into the joy of you. And so, God, I pray that even as Tim requests, it might go quickly. And, God, that um, you would be much pleased to receive one of your servants unto yourself. Uh, I pray also just for the Iverson family in this uh, difficult time of uh, thinking about losing a father. 
and think about losing a, a grandfather. Lord, I pray you'd be gracious to minister to the family. I, I know of the, the difficulties they've had in, in recent days. God, I would pray for them. God, that you'd be gracious and kind to them to help them encourage them even in this time. I think about what a busy week this might be. Um, God, with um, arrangements and with um, other things, God, I pray that you would um, God help them and support them and encourage them. Now, I pray also for us as a, as a church body. I pray that we would set our minds on the things above, not on the things that are here upon earth, and that we would seek your glory. And I pray now, God, as I open your word, I pray that it would be an opportunity where we, as a, as a church body, would embrace what your word says and would believe it. And I think particularly of this passage that speaks about how we ought not to be taken captive God, I pray that you would instill within our minds such a view of the sufficiency and the glory and the authority of Christ that we would in no way seek something else and thus be diverted and taken away from what we have in Jesus that we'd be captured and kidnapped of our souls. But I pray in every way, God, that we would stand firm on the rock of our salvation, which is Christ Jesus alone. So empower me now as I preach. God, be among us, teach us, convict us of sin, and show us of Christ. That's what the Spirit longs to do. And so, Lord, I pray that that would take place this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll invite you to take your Bibles and open them to the book of Colossians. We're in chapter 2. In our exposition, we have reached chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10 this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in Him you have been made complete, and He is the head over all rule and authority." Well, if you've been following the news of the political events in Israel in recent days, you know that things over there have been very difficult. As, as I, in fact, even as I speak right now, Israel is involved in, in war on two fronts, in the south in Gaza and in the north in Lebanon. In Gaza, the conflict began early Sunday morning, June 25th about a month ago, when some Palestinian militants crossed the border from the, from the Gaza Strip into Israel through a tunnel. And they attacked three Israeli soldiers. They killed two of them, but the third one, his name is Galad Shalit, survived the attack and was kidnapped and brought back into Gaza. Three days later, when the, those in Gaza refused to release him, the Israel Defense Force launched an offensive military effort in attempts to rescue this soldier from the hands of his captors. And so that started the war down south. What started the war up north in Lebanon was much the same. Perhaps you remember Wednesday, July 12th, just a few weeks ago, Hezbollah guerrillas crossed the border into Israel from Lebanon and they attacked some Israeli soldiers. They killed three of them. Two of them survived and have been taken captive into Lebanon. As a result, the Israel Defense Force began a severe and harsh, that's their word, severe and harsh retaliation on Lebanon with artillery and with airstrikes. Maybe you've seen some of that in the news. It's devastating. It's war is what it is. And such actions have really caused several countries, including the United States, to evacuate its citizens living in Lebanon. It's extremely serious and we ought to take heed to Psalm 122, verse 6. It says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, because it is not peaceful today. Um, we know some missionaries there, uh, Eitan and Arit Kashtin. Gordy mentioned about them in our prayer meeting this morning. We prayed for them. They said that their, uh, their life, if I remember quite right to quote um, Gordy, is stressful right now. They're trying to live in the midst of a country being at war. You know, when we're at war in Iraq, it's like, Halfway around the world, when they're at war, it's like they're at war in Chicago and we live here in Rockford. It's a very small country and war, it's very close. 
The picture we get in Colossians chapter 2 is the same situation we see in Gaza and we see in Lebanon. Paul uses this picture of one being kidnapped by an enemy to describe the danger of drifting from the centrality of Christ in all things. Right? Look once again there at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one kidnaps you. See to it that no one takes you behind enemy lines into custody and strips you of all of your freedoms. And appropriately, my message this morning is entitled, Do, Don't Be Taken Captive. It's the governing thought of our text. It is the governing thought of verse 8. It's the governing thought of verse 9, 10. And even it's the governing thought of 11 and 12 and following. But we have so much here, we're only going to get through verse 10. It's a command which we need to pay attention to. We need to realize that we need not to be taken captive. Verse 8 really describes the dangers to which we might be taken captive. And verse 9 and 10 give us reasons why we need to avoid the enemy. The enemy here is not a Palestinian militant. It's not a Hezbollah guerrilla. The enemy here is false teaching that would attack your mind and then would seek to pull you away from trusting in Christ Jesus the Lord. Look at how he describes it there. He says, see to it that no one take you captive through these teachings that get into your mind, through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. The enemy here doesn't fight with bullets and tanks and missiles. Rather, the enemy fights here by using persuasive arguments, like it mentions here in verse 4 that will ultimately attempt to brainwash you to believe lies and to drift away from Christ. Maybe some of you remember the tragic story of Patty Hearst. She grew up in a wealthy suburb in uh, San Francisco in the 1960s. As a 19-year-old, in February of 1974, she's kidnapped from her apartment in Berkeley by an urban guerrilla group known as the Symbionese Liberation Army. It's really just a small group. It really wasn't an army, but basically they were rebels against society wanting to bring more things into the urban environment. All attempts to free her were in vain. In fact, um, Patty Hearst came from a very wealthy family and her family even gave $6 million to provide food to feed poor people in the San Francisco Bay Area. And even after that was done, the promise that she'd be released, but she wasn't released. And all efforts to free her were in vain. But while in captivity through persuasive argument and brainwashing. Her captors brainwashed her. And eventually then, she became sympathetic to their cause and became committed to their goals. And less than three months after her capture, Patty Hearst helped them rob a bank. There's a famous picture I've written for, I've drawn it there on the children's notes of her holding an assault rifle as she's robbing a bank. She's shown in front in one picture. It's another famous picture in front of the Symbionese Liberation Army um, logo behind her holding an assault rifle. She's one who was, um, who was brainwashed. Eventually, she, along with the other members of this Liberation Army, were arrested, convicted of bank robbery, and thrown in prison. Well, that's the picture of those who are led astray by philosophy and empty deception rather than according to Christ. Ultimately, it's a, it's a brainwashing that takes place so that people believe a lie rather than believing the truth that's according to Christ. Now, at this point in my message, I, I thought about going through each of these four characteristics or the four dangers that we have. There's, there's philosophy. There's empty deception. There is um, traditions of men. And there is things according to the elementary principles of the world. These four things. And, and as I prepared and tried to segment each of those out, philosophy and, and uh, vain conceit, empty deception and traditions of men and uh, elementary principles of the world, I realized that they're not just four distinct things, but really they, they all like overlap is what they do. Some of what's one is some and true of another. And so it's difficult to describe the philosophy, the traditions and the elementary principles were all deceptive. They're all part of this deceitful teaching. The traditions of men and the elementary principles of the world both have a philosophy of life and a theory of salvation. So, a philosophy is kind of part of these things. And 
The traditions and elementary principles had sometimes similarities in which they, they taught. So it's really difficult to say, okay, this is what this is, and this is what this is, and this is what this is, and this is what this is. But here, here's, the, here's the point, though, is that in using these kind of four characteristics of, of the dangers and the enemy, Paul is kind of in general describing the dangers taking place in the church at Colossae and saying, don't be deceived by these things. I mean, the the false teaching in Colossae was also an assortment of all these these different teachings. I've taught you before in the past that there was an element of of Judaistic teaching in there. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 16 talks about Sabbath and festivals and new moons and Sabbath days. People were lifting up these dietary laws. And these festivals and feasts and said, you need to keep these. You need to celebrate these if you want to be godly. That was one, one kind of shade of the teaching there. Another shade of the teaching was this mystic kind of teaching, experiential teaching in verse 18, right? People are delighting in the worship of angels. They're taking their stand on visions they'd seen. And there's a very mystical element. People said they had a, a religious experience that you need to have too. If you want to be made complete, you need to have this extra thing. You need to have this vision. Another element of the teaching here in Colossians is a, is a Gnostic element. Right? The Gnostics, they, they really know. Right? They're the ones in the know and you're the ones not in the know. And one of the things that flowed from Gnosticism is a belief that the, the earth was bad and that heaven is good. And so we ought to abstain from a lot of the things on earth right? because heaven is good and earth is bad. Right? That's in verse 21, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch, right? Keep away from those things. It's a, it's a Gnostic element. Also, an emphasis upon asceticism. Taught the importance of self-discipline, right? The key to godliness is, is self-abasement, severe treatment of the body. Right? Whip yourself when you sin. Punish yourself when things don't go right. And when you put all of these things together, that kind of forms what's called the Colossian heresy. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on at Colossae. There are dozens of different theories about the exact heresy. But what I've painted for you is kind of the picture of the things going on at Colossae. Some of these teachings reflect religious traditions coming from men, not from God. Paul's probably talking here about... um, you know, the, the tendency to follow the Old Testament laws and customs. I mean, tradition was huge in the synagogues. Maybe you remember the time when Jesus, right, was, was eating food and these uh, Pharisees came up to Him and they said, why do your disciples not wash hands before you eat? Some of you parents asked that of your children, but they were asking that of Jesus. I Meaning, ceremonially, why don't they wash their hands before they eat? Why do they, as they said, transgress the tradition of the elders? And Jesus had a great question. He said, why do you transgress the commands of God for the sake of your traditions? Tradition was huge in the Judaistic um, life of the Pharisees. Later, Jesus said that these men are hypocrites because they teach us doctrines, the precepts of men. Because they're teaching us doctrines, the, the traditions. In Paul, verse 8, it's getting at him. He says, don't pay attention to the traditions. Some of the teaching, this religious teaching, came from the ancient Greek world in the, the heresies here. This, um, you know, this was talking about here in the, the elementary principles of the world. See, it's not merely the Jews had laws and regulations about how to live. Also, the, the Gentiles did too. And, and they had, um, you know, you think about the ancient Greek literature. They had, they had religion. They had rules to follow. They had ways to act. Think about, they had big temples in Ephesus. They had the temple of Artemis in, in Athens. They had the, the Parthenon. I mean, they had religious gods and goddesses and they learned about right and wrong and things to do and kind of had built up over time with this kind of wealth of knowledge and the way that things are. And that was another, that, the Gnostic Greek religious tendency kind of coming in there. And that's what Paul is addressing here in verse 8. And certainly as in Colossians, people taught about these things. I mean, people looked wise. They looked sophisticated and philosophical and learned. But in the end, I mean, all their talk led to emptiness. I mean, keeping Jewish feasts and festivals and Sabbath days ultimately gets you nowhere. Seeking mystical, spiritual experiences, I'm telling you, it's as transitory as the wind. Severe treatment of the body 
might have the appearance of wisdom, but in the end, as Paul says in chapter 2, verse 23, it has no value against fleshly indulgence, right? Whipping your body into submission is not going to keep you from sin. And no amount of worldly knowledge and philosophy will ever justify you before God. And so Paul's warning here in verse 8 is wonderfully comprehensive against all these false teachings. He warns against the philosophies, uh, against the empty deceptions, against the traditions of men, against the elementary principles of the world, right? Uh, Addressing all the errors in the most general of terms. And he's saying, don't be led captive by any of these things. Whether philosophy was according to the tradition of men or whether philosophy was pulling in the elementary principles from other religions. Listen, it was all in vain and it was all to be avoided at all costs. Now, I need to add here some parentheses that the verse isn't denying the validity of all philosophy. And you know what philosophy means, the Greek word? It's combined two words, philos and sophia. Philos means love and sophia means wisdom. Philosophy is the love of wisdom. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? It's a good thing. We ought to love wisdom. In fact, Solomon told his son, Proverbs chapter 4, Acquire wisdom, acquire understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will guard you. Love her and she will watch over you. Right? Love wisdom and she will watch over you. We ought to be philosophers. We ought to love wisdom. We ought to pursue it. Because wisdom will be our protection in this life. The love of wisdom will help us to obtain that protection. So in the fullest sense of the world, we need to be philosophers. We need to love wisdom. And so the danger here in verse 8 isn't being taken captive to philosophy per se, but when he uses philosophy in this passage, he's he's describing the, the worldly effects of the intellect to explain the world in such a way that would contradict the work of Christ on the cross. Right? And we see that there in, in verse 8 when Paul says, right at the end, he says, stay away from philosophy and empty tradition, empty deception, rather than according to Christ. So, so it's the philosophies that are anything other than Christ that you need to stay away with. But if, you're, if your philosophy is governed by Christ and His work on the cross, boy, that's right on. But I tell you, many philosophies aren't governed by, by Christ. You know, the definition of a philosopher is one who redoubles his efforts after losing sight of his objective. I have no idea what, but I'm, I'm going to go after it, you know? And it's just vain and it's futile. And oftentimes, philosophies go off and totally neglect Christ. I mean, there's atheism and agnosticism and all these isms. I had a list of them written down here. I think I, I took them out someplace. But of all the different philosophies that there are that don't take any account of Christ into account at all. And, and that's the danger. I mean, but this here phrase here that it says, rather than according to Christ, this is the governor that ought to guide us. I mean, after all, think about where is wisdom to be found? Where is wisdom found? It's found in Jesus Christ. Isn't that what it says in chapter 2? You remember that? Verse 3, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. To love Christ is to love the wisdom flows from Him. So let us be philosophers who love to search out this wisdom that's found in Christ. And your search will never be exhausted. I'm not sure you remember the time when uh, Jesus was talking with the Pharisees. And... uh, They were thinking some things and he said, you know, look at Solomon and all his glory. And he says that something better than Solomon is here. Jesus saying that all the wisdom, all the glory of everything that Solomon has, something better than Solomon is here. And he's saying it's me because in Christ are hidden all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. So it says in verse three. And so, verse 8, the warning here is don't be taken captive to philosophies which aren't according to Christ. Don't drift from Jesus. That's what he's saying. Now, maybe at this point, you might be thinking, you know what? This sounds a little bit familiar. And indeed, it was my message from several weeks ago in chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 
I mean, the point in verse 8 is kind of the negative of verse 6 and 7, which were the positive. Maybe it's time for a little bit review. In 6 and 7, the main point there is that we need to walk in Christ. How is it that we need to walk in Christ? We walk in Christ as we begun, right? It says in verse 6, As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Right? As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, you've received Him by faith in His atoning sacrifice on the cross. How is it you ought to walk? By faith in His atoning sacrifice on the cross. Walk as you began. Chapter 7, or verse 7 here. Walk like a tree is what I said. Having been firmly rooted, right? We're to be firm and established and grounded in these things like a big oak tree. Walk firm in Christ. We're to walk like a building, right? The foundation, right, needs to be secure. Verse 7, being built up in Him, right? The foundation is Christ and we're just building up in Christ. We walk like a rock. Verse 7, right? Established in your faith. Not be shaken away or move from how we're instructed to begin. That's how we need to live our Christian life. We need to walk our Christian life just as we began our Christian life. Right? That's what it says even in verse 7. Just as you were instructed. We need to continue on in the ways in which we were instructed. Jesus Christ and Him crucified must be the melody that we play. You've heard of orchestras and symphonies, Right? Isn't there always the same melody that comes back again? It repeats. It's said in different ways, in different forms. Right? That's what we're about. Christ Him crucified. Christ Him crucified is the melody that we sing that comes through. And that's what He says. Don't be taken captive to anything that's not according to to Christ. We need to remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Jesus established the Lord's Supper so that we would constantly remember His work on the cross pictured in the elements of the bread and the cup. We receive the Spirit by hearing with faith need to continue to walk by the Spirit with faith. We ought not to leave our first love, but continue on. Or as Paul says, see to it that no one take you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. You know, there's great comfort in these words. There's great comfort in these words, right? We don't need to have a PhD and understand all the intricate details of all the complex philosophies that all exist in the world. Yvonne and I were in California and um, we were in a bookstore in Borders. And I just, you know, I grabbed this book on football, you know, and kind of looked through all of the, the stuff and she was off looking at things. But kind of on the way out, I saw this book that said, The Last Man Who Knew Everything. It's a story about this guy, I forget his name, but this guy who basically lived like in the 1700s and he was an expert in science and he was an expert in, he proved Newton wrong because he took into account a little bit of Einstein stuff, or Newton's right, but he's not exactly right, you know, and um, developed things and invented things, and he's like the last Leonardo da Vinci, because the idea was that after him, the he says here, it's your own soul. I don't care if it's your beloved son who's come back from Harvard with a PhD and knows all these things that you don't know. If anyone urges you to go and serve other gods, don't entertain his thoughts for a moment. Don't pity him. One iota, kill him and cast the first stone. He's seeking to seduce you from the Lord. And I can just hear Paul say this. I don't care who your teachers are. I don't care if it's your wife who's teaching you these things. I don't care if it's your husband who's teaching you these things. I don't care if it's your, your closest friend. If they are teaching you something that's contrary to Christ and seeking to pull you away, don't believe Him. Don't listen to Him. Don't yield to them. And don't worry about the broken relationship that comes about. He's seeking to pull you away from Christ. He's seeking to take you captive. Let's go on. Deuteronomy 13, verse 12. If you hear in your own one of your cities which the Lord your God is giving you to live in, anyone saying that some worthless men have gone out from among you and have seduced the inhabitants of their city, saying, let us go and serve other gods whom you have not known. 
then you shall investigate and search out and inquire thoroughly. And if it is true and the matter established that this abomination has been done among you, you shall surely strike the inhabitants of the city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it and all that is in it and its cattle with the edge of the sword. And then you shall gather all its booty into the middle of its open square and burn the whole city and all its booty with fire as a whole burnt offering to the Lord your God. It shall be a ruin forever. It shall never be rebuilt. Nothing from that which is put under the ban shall cling to your hand in order the Lord may turn from His burning anger and show mercy to you and have compassion on you and make you increase just as He has sworn to your fathers. If you will listen to the voice of the Lord your God, keeping all His commandments, which I'm commanding you today, and doing what is right in the sight of the Lord your God. And here, I can just hear Moses saying, right? I don't care how many righteous people there are in the city. I don't care if there are some people there wanting to serve the Lord. If there's rebellious citizen in the city, and he is seducing those in the city, boy, destroy the city. Destroy remembrances of the city. Listen, because they're polluted with the influence of following after this man. And I can hear Paul say, I don't care how many people are believing this. I don't care what the church across the city is doing. I don't care how fast they're growing. If they're advocating a doctrine that's not according to Christ, or if they're getting involved with philosophies of empty deception and vain conceit, ignore them. Don't worry about it. Let them alone. Don't give them another thought. Because they might just well pull you away into their own deception. Now, to our modern ears, I mean, these things in Deuteronomy 13 might sound harsh. Kids, do these things sound harsh? Under the Old Testament dispensation, right? Some of us be dead. It's only the grace of God, the kindness and the patience of God that withholds His judgment upon us. But I tell you, this is the constant danger of the church. We're under constant temptation to lose the centrality of Christ. From all sides, listen, we'll be pulled away from the simple saving message of the gospel of Christ. Other things will seek to unseat the the primacy of Jesus. They will. To seek to dethrone Him. right? Put something else that's maybe more important than Jesus. Satan's alive and well and will use any means at his disposal to seduce people away from the gospel of Christ. Listen to what he, Paul said to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 4. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Paul was fearful. He was fearful that just as Satan deceived Eve, so also the Corinthians and us would be deceived away from the simplicity and purity of simple devotion to Jesus. And he was worried because verse 4 says what happens. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. You know, there's people coming to the church with, with teaching that's, that's contrary to what they'd heard, and they're like smiling. Well, you receive it beautifully. He's saying, I'm fearful that you're being seduced away from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. Listen, the Gospel is of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The Gospel is of greatest importance that Christ died for our sins. And our hearts ought always to live and reflect a simple-minded trust in this glorious thought, right? My, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part... But the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And you constantly reflect upon that. Satan will do everything in his power to keep us away from that simplicity, right? Attract us with other things. Attract us even perhaps with other theologies, right? Maybe eschatology takes primary thing. Maybe some doctrine of the church takes some primary precedence. Maybe some doctrine of 
baptism or some doctrine of something else takes priority rather than the simplicity of the gospel of Christ. I love the way that D.A. Carson puts forth this, this danger in this excellent book. He's written The Cross and Christian Ministry. He says this, and this I think brings it down to application to us. All right? He says, Western evangelicalism tends to run through cycles of fads. <laughs> how true, how true. At the moment, 1993 is when this book is written, I think. 1993, he says, At the moment, books are pouring off the presses telling us how to plan for success. How vision consists in clearly articulated ministry goals. How the knowledge of detailed profiles of our community constitutes the key to successful outreach. Now, I'm not for a moment suggesting that there's nothing to be learned from such studies. But, after a while, one may perhaps be excused for marveling how many churches were planted by Paul and Whitfield and Wesley and Stanway and Judson without enjoying these advantages. Of course, all of us need to understand the people to whom we minister and all of us can benefit from small doses of such literature. That's the key, the small doses of literature. But massive doses sooner or later dilute the gospel. Ever so subtly, we start to think that success is more critically depends upon thoughtful sociological analysis than on the gospel. Barna becomes more important than the Bible. We depend on plans, programs, vision statements. But somewhere along the way, we've succumbed to this temptation to displace the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of strategic planning. There's a philosophy coming in there. Again, I insist my position is not a thinly veiled plea for obscurantism or for seat-of-the-pants ministry that plans nothing. Rather, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy by relatively peripheral insights that take on far too much weight. Whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center we are not far moved from idolatry. Whenever the periphery, that that's on the side of minor importance, right? Little doses would be good. Whenever that comes into the center, we are not far removed from idolatry. And that's Paul's point. Don't be taken captive back there in Colossians chapter 2. Don't be taken captive to anything that will displace Christ from the center of our lives and our thoughts and our ministries. All of it needs to be according to Christ. Well, that's kind of a long introduction to my, my main points here in some sense. Um, really, that is, that's, that's the title. That's the burden of my message. Don't be captured. Don't be kidnapped. Don't be taken captive. But verses 9 and 10 give us three reasons why we ought not to be taken captive. And they're so simple and straightforward, I think that we can breeze through them here in the final moments of my message this morning. Why should you not be taken captive? Here to point number one, because Jesus has all deity. I mean, look there at verse 9. It begins with the word for. That means because, right? It's the purpose. Don't be led captive because. Here's the reason. Verse 9, because in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It says reference to the Incarnation. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? When Jesus walked upon the earth, He was full deity. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. Right? We know much about this. Every December comes along, Christmas time. We teach, ponder, think much about the incarnation of God becoming man to save us from our sins. So we don't need to, to dwell a lot there. It's already been mentioned in chapter 1, verse 19, right? It's a God, Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. Right? The fullness of deity dwelled in Christ because Christ was God upon earth. But what I'd like to do, rather than, than delving into the mysteries of the Incarnation, which I'm totally inadequate to explain that anyway because I don't have the foggiest how that works. But anyway, I want to look at the logic that Paul is saying here. He says the reason why we shouldn't be taken captive, verse 8, is because Jesus is fully God. Okay? Now you think about that. Don't be taken captive because Jesus is God. might take you a moment to say, how, how, does it, how does it connect? How, how is it that the deity of Christ relates to our being seduced by another philosophy? Here's how I think it relates. I think it just relates like this. Is that, you know what? Nobody can top Jesus. Can't top Him. 
He's the fullness of deity dwelling in bodily form. That means He's the best of the best. There's nothing more to seek. There's no creature that can top Jesus. There's no deed that can top what Jesus has done. There's no angel that has nearly the power and authority that He has. Jesus is the greatest. You don't need to seek anything else. I want to illustrate this by uh, supposing someone gives you an authentic Cellini Rolex watch. Gives it to you as a gift. Valued like $7,000. You know, there are some watches that are valued like that. Highly valuable watch. Gold studded, diamond studded, gold bracelet. Very nice watch, okay? Keeps excellent time. Practically indestructible. Beautiful piece of jewelry. You like the way it functions. There it is on your wrist. And you're walking. The, the Cherry Valley Mall, walking by a jewelry store, and you hear this voice. says, hey, you! What? He says, this jeweler in there. He says, hey, you, come here. i got something to show you. You're like, okay. So you walk into his store, the jewelry store, and then uh, he pulls out this Timex watch. And he says, have I got a deal for you? Look at this Timex watch. You need this Timex watch. It keeps great time. It's perfect. Look at it. Look at it. Here it is. Here. It, valued at $200. I'll give it to you for $75 with a trade-in of your watch. Now, what would you say? Are you crazy? Seven grand, buddy. That's what this is. $70. I don't think so. It doesn't work. And you leave, right? That's the argument here. Don't be led captive because Jesus is the highest. He's the best. Why would you trade Him in for any other being or philosophy or thought or anything? And I'm just telling you, I don't care what philosopher or philosophy offers it's always going to be less than Christ. He's the sovereign creator of the universe. In fact, remember chapter 1, verses 15 through 20? Talking all about Christ and how great He is, the form of the Father, right? the, the firstborn of creation, the, the creator of the world, the one who sustains the world, the head of the body, the church, so that He would come to first place and everything. Listen, there's nothing else that comes close to Jesus Christ. Any other philosophy, any other thought, it won't compare. And if you trade your watch in for a Timex, you're being taken captive. Why should we not be taken captive? Because Jesus has all deity. Second, why should we not be taken captive? Because Jesus has all sufficiency. And in Him, verse 10... You have been made complete. Now, some of your translations might read differently. The, the NIV says it like this. You have been given fullness in Christ. The ESV says you have been filled in Him. Those translations are literal translations the NAS interprets. The NAS, the King James versions, interpret to mean that as you've been filled, you have been made complete. Right? The idea is the same. You've been filled up. In fact, you've been filled up so high that you can't be filled up anymore. You are complete in Jesus Christ. And Paul's point is one of sufficiency. In Jesus, you have everything that you need. Second Peter, he's given us in Christ Jesus everything pertaining to life and godliness. Jesus has all sufficiency. And so, the reason why you shouldn't be taken captive is because in Jesus, you have everything that you need. You don't need anything more. Let me illustrate this one. You've been at a restaurant before and uh, you have a, a glass of water and uh, any good waiter or waitress often comes along with a, with a pitcher of water. Right? Say, oh, you know, they go around and they you know, pour up your, your water you know, and sometimes your water like gets way up to the top and starts spilling. So, oh, me, and they put it there and sometimes even you know, maybe because of surface tension, the, the cup is here like this and the water's going up and over it so full. You, you know what I'm talking about? And then like five minutes later, Right? Your waiter comes back and hey, you want some more? And, and, and suppose that your, your cup is filled to like overflowing and um, you haven't touched it five minutes. You've engaged in conversation. You haven't needed a drink. And then, then the waiter comes back and says, oh, would you like to fill up on your cup? Would you like me to fill you up? What are you saying? Are you crazy? You can't fit any more. You want more drop and it's going to spill. That's the idea. Right here. The glass is already 
filled to overflowing. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you have everything you need. There's nothing more that can fit in your drop. You're complete in Him. Do you need anything else? You don't. Sadly, there are people who come around and offer you things more that you need. Right? They have some religious experience for you that you need to have this to be a full Christian. They have some book for you that's going to unlock for you the secrets to the Bible and spirituality. They have some new technique of praying. Help you pray the exact words that God's going to be satisfied with. Or the technique in doing, right? They're taking you captive to their own philosophy rather than realizing, you know what? I have sufficiency in Christ. I'm filled up. I don't need anything else. What you need is not a new experience. What you need is a fresh reminder. You don't need extra knowledge or special techniques. You need a continual reminder. Your cup is filled to overflowing. Let me stop here. Your cup is filled to overflowing if you're believing and trusting in Christ. If you have not trusted Christ, or if Christ is not your trust, you know, your cup is empty, quite frankly. You may try to fill it up with your good works. You may try to fill it up with your good deeds or with your supposed godliness. Listen, but that's an empty pitcher pouring into an empty cup. You might as well be drinking air. You've got nothing. But when you believe in Jesus Christ, you've got it all. He takes that pitcher of water and fills it up and you are filled up complete in Him. Washed clean, pure. And what you need is a reminder, right? We need to believe it, right? We need to, to, to trust in it. That's why we love to sing the song before the throne of God above, right? When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what are we supposed to do? Upward I look and see Him there who made an end to all, all my sin, right? I'm full. I've been cl- completely cleansed in Christ. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Because I'm full. And Satan might come and seek to dissuade you or persuade you away from something. And you might say, no, no, no. I'm there. I'm there. I'm set. I love the hymns that Jake chose today. Right? Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. The other one, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. Is it not Jesus died that He lives for me or whatever? It's a thought. So Jesus, we're sufficient and complete in Him. We need to believe it. And not to believe it is to put us in danger of being captured, kidnapped. Well, third reason. Why should I not be taken captive? Because Jesus has all deity, because Jesus has all sufficiency. And here it is, number three, Jesus has all authority. He is the head over all rule and authority. You name a ruler or a king or an angelic warrior, and I'll tell you one whose authority is higher than that king. Whether it's Alexander the Great who conquered the entire known world, or whether it's the President of the United States, whether it's Michael the Archangel, whether it's the highest ranking demon, Jesus Christ has authority over them all. Let me illustrate this one. Imagine with me that you hop on a plane. After church today, you go to Washington, D.C. Spend the night in Washington, D.C. Get up early Monday morning and make a house call in the White House. And you say, um, I'm here to see Condoleezza Rice, Secretary of State. Yep, i got a few things to tell her. And you... you <laughs> Miraculously, you get into her office, okay? Imagine with me, okay? You get into her office, and then you say, oh, Condoleezza, you're going over to Lebanon here in a few days. Let me tell you. Here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to do with the king of Lebanon. Here's what you need to do with the Israeli prime minister. And here's what you need to say to Syria. And here's what you need to... And put all these things. What would Condoleezza Rice say to you? Who died and put you in charge? I think you're crazy. That's what she would say. I answer to the President of the United States. I submit myself to him and his advisors. I don't take my marching orders from you. I don't take my marching orders from anybody anybody else except the President and his advisors. You are nobody. Well, the same argument Paul uses here. Don't be taken captive by any other philosophy or teaching because Jesus has authority over every teaching and every authority and every spiritual being and every teacher. Nobody's authority can compare to the authority of Jesus Christ. You're just going to replace a big authority with a lesser authority. 
And that's foolish. And that means your mind will be brainwashed and you'd be led away captive. And so I ask you, church body, will anything dethrone the all-sufficient centrality of Jesus Christ in your life? He's all deity. He's all sufficiency. He has all authority. And my exhortation comes to you as this text comes. Don't be taken captive. So let's pray. Lord, we have great need to be helped by You. Lord, we are prone to wander. And I know, Lord, that I feel it. I know how sin creeps in my flesh. I know how the distractions come from without. I know how thoughts and philosophies can be tantalizing. And yet, God, I have a need and we all here have a need God, to stay secure in Christ and not be taken captive. God, I think about Patty Hearst and she was captured against her will. God, I think about the um, Israeli soldiers who've been captured, whether that's in the north or in the south. They've been captured against their will. God, I think about the U.S. soldiers that were away from the convoy and captured against their will. And, And yet, a big difference here is that we are captivated by our will through our desires of our mind. So God, I pray that You would protect us and keep us. I pray for the people here hearing this message that You would in every way protect us. I think especially of of children. As they get older, to think for themselves, begin to see that mom and dad aren't quite as knowledgeable or as cool as they thought they once were. And how easy is it for children to, to drift away and reject the teaching of mom and dad. And I pray, Lord, even now that you would keep them, that you would show them the folly of their ways. It's in submitting to Jesus Christ where all protection is. It's in staying with the convoy. It's in staying inside of the cross all the time. God, where our protection is. And I pray, Lord, that You would so stir in the hearts of kids. As they think about drifting, they think about moving, they think about replacing Christ by some other teacher or philosophy or class. You'd show them the folly of their ways that they would repent and realize that Jesus Christ is, is the greatest God in the flesh. That faith in Him is the only thing that satisfies before you. And that Jesus has all authority to which one day all of us will bow, either willingly or unwillingly. So God, I pray you'd help us. We need your strength. God, to keep us on the narrow way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.